I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson. Thank you so much for listening. For those that uh, maybe didn't hear the last episode, uh, we are back, but we are back in a different form, a little bit uh, simplified. So the show is going to be every two weeks. It's going to be me by myself. Uh, Reed, Robert, and Josh are not a part of the show at the, as of right now. There's nothing nothing against them. It has more to do with just uh, me doing a, a show that is not uh, obligatory and doesn't, frankly, require a lot of planning. Um, that is what uh, Jen and I have de- uh, determined uh, will be best. So... Today we're going to be talking about Terrence Malick's A Hidden Life, but before we do that, I did want to mention some of the things that are on uh, the website, morethanonelesson.com right now. Uh, So Bob Connolly uh, reviewed Ryan Johnson's Knives Out uh, over at The Fear of God. They recently discussed Rob Reiner's Stand By Me, and... That's kind of it. Oh, and then Bob also wrote about uh, the first few episodes of The Mandalorian, and then he'll be following that up uh, very soon. So there's stuff to uh, listen to, stuff to read over at morethanonelesson.com. All right. So today we are talking about Terrence Malick's A Hidden Life, uh, a film that, as of recording, is uh, in limited release, so it might not be something that many of you can see. And now that I say that, part of me is wondering, why did I choose to talk about it? Uh, but if you if you watch the trailer, if you know anything about the story, it will become very clear very quickly why I chose to talk about it. Um, so for those uh, that are familiar with Terrence Malick, he, he's just sort of a, a director on the fringe. Uh, but he, he just seems to be an industry in, in and of himself because... He started out in the 1970s making a movie called Badlands, and then he made a movie called Days of Heaven, and then there was a huge gap, and he made a movie called uh, The Thin Red Line, followed that up a few years later with The New World, and then in 2011 came Tree of Life, for which he was not. the film was nominated for Best Picture. He was up for director, uh, and that seemed to kick off this weird period where he just started cranking out movies. He followed that up with a movie called To the Wonder and then Night of Cups and then Song to Song and now A Hidden Life. So that's that's five movies in eight years, which for someone who would let more than a decade go by between uh, some of his movies, that's it's it's insane. Um, and what's interesting is that as a director, he is not story or character oriented, uh, at least not in a way that is that 
people are accustomed to. Uh, if you go and watch Badlands, that one is probably the most character-based film he's made. But story, con- like conventional story, is certainly not how he operates. Um, to such an extent, actually, that there are actors who really love the idea of working with him. He always is able to get a pretty amazing cast. Uh, you just need to look at the last several movies. He's had Brad Pitt and Jessica Chastain and Christian Bale, uh, Ben Affleck, all kinds of people. And what's interesting is that I think because his scripts are not incredibly tight, I think the actors feel a sense of freedom to really experiment with their characters and, and all of that. And that is great. Uh, I feel happy for those actors, but at the same time, something that Terrence Malick is known to do is he sort of finds the movie in the editing room. He shoots a lot of footage and then as he's cutting it all together, the story, or I guess that's, I guess I wouldn't even refer to it as a story, the tone or the message or whatever it is he's trying to uh, get across, that sort of comes to him as he's editing. And there are times where he will leave a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor, including entire subplots and entire characters. Uh, In uh, The Tree of Life in 2011, Sean Penn is is in it and he plays an important role but he's really not in it very much and you get the sense in fact I think I I maybe read an article at the time that Sean Penn was rather upset when he saw the final cut because so much of his stuff was removed uh in The Thin Red Line which is actually it's a World War II film that is also an ensemble uh and I think I believe it was Adrian Brody who had a big role in the movie and it was almost completely cut out. Um, he had a big role, he had a subplot, all of that, and it was removed. And, you know, uh, I feel like if you're, if you're an actor working for Terrence Malick, that's just something that you have to be ready for is putting in, uh, a lot of probably very good work that the director himself I'm sure he has nothing against those actors. He just, as the movie is coming together, everything is sacrificed in favor of the film that he is trying to make. And that includes, in some cases, actors' performances. It can also include narrative coherence. It can also include uh, brevity. Um, In the case of of A Hidden Life, the film is almost three hours long. Uh, and his other films are also pretty long and there, there are critics and so there are certainly viewers who fault him for that. Uh, they consider his films to be really self-indulgent. And while I don't necessarily like that term, I can definitely see that claim, uh, because when it comes right down to it, he is indulging himself in so far as he is following where his artistic muse is going, regardless of who may like the movie or who may not like the movie, or the actor's ego, or anything like that. He just is making the movie that feels right to him. And that's something that, frankly, I, I find invigorating in a lot of instances. Uh, uh, granted, I have not seen Night of Cups or Song to Song. It's not because I didn't want to, I just did not get around to it. And as sometimes happens, when I don't get to a movie 
within the year that it is released there. It's usually a few years before I am able to get back to it. Uh, because that's just sort of the, the problem with doing what I do as a film critic and as a film professor is there's such an emphasis on staying current that if something slips by, uh, it's, it, kind of is, is out of the conversation and that's, that's not the fault of the film or anything like that. It's just sort of the culture that I'm a part of. But, uh, with a hidden life, I, I remember hearing some early buzz, um, about it. Terrence Malick, I don't know what his religious beliefs are. He definitely seems preoccupied with the cosmic or the spiritual. And one could even say the Christian, the themes that he explores and the way that he explores them seem to be predominantly Christian. And so I had heard a few people talk about A Hidden Life and what it was, and that it might be the most overtly Christian of his films. And so I was definitely, definitely had my attention. Um, and then when I heard that it was based on a true story and that it was not part of an ensemble, I found myself increasingly curious because I thought that telling a true story, I feel like in doing that, it, it can cause a, a, a writer or a director to want to do justice to that story and hit certain points and, and all of that. And it can give focus to a, a director like Terrence Malick. And by the way, focus, I don't mean to say that him being unfocused is necessarily a bad thing, but it definitely, it provides an inherent structure uh, because if he is trying to tell a true story, then there is a beginning, middle, and end. And then what can we learn from this? That's just sort of how it works. And it's it's interesting to me to see someone like Terrence Malick try to do that. To my knowledge, he has not told a true story before. He has adapted things. The Thin Red Line is based on a novel, and so he adapted that. Uh, oh, you know what? I'm sorry. Uh, uh, the New World is based on the story of Pocahontas. Uh, so yeah, so he he did do that, and that's a film that also, I think, had some focus as well. So I was really excited to see it, and then I finally did see it, and sure enough, it is a long movie, and if you know that going in, and if you have any experience with Terrence Malick at all, uh, you just sort of prepare yourself for it. And I don't mean to suggest that it's some kind of painful experience. In fact, exactly the opposite. But if you go in expecting Ford versus Ferrari, that's not what you're going to get. So uh, getting yourself into a very specific mindset so that you can just sort of let the film wash over you, I think is the best way to approach any Terrence Malick film, especially one like A Hidden Life, which is as long as it is and is told in the way that it is. So the story is about Franz Jägerstadter and his wife, Franziska, um, who were uh, Austrian farmers in the 1930s and into the 40s. And of course, if you lived in Austria at the time, it is essentially annexed by Germany. And if you are a able-bodied male, then there is an expectation that you will fight for the Nazi party uh, in the war. In the war, so uh, that's the that's the basic premise. And Franz and his wife and their children they they live a very idyllic life. 
And the way Terrence Malick shoots his movies, it's, there's a lot of wide angle lenses that really capture these sweeping vistas because this is, as I guess any farm would be, it's a, a rural farm, but it's in a very mountainous area. And so it has a really sweeping epic quality, even though the lives that these characters are living is not epic. It is very humble and very quiet and very simple. And I don't mean to say simple in, in the sense of simplistic. It's just very simple. Um, they know what they prioritize and they know they love each other and they know that they are Christian and that they believe in God and they believe in a sense of morality. And so as the, as the possibility of Franz being called up to serve in the army, as that looms, he starts to debate whether or not he can actually fight for the Nazis, that he, he, it, it requires, among other things, swearing an oath to Hitler, and he does not respect Hitler, and he does not like what is happening to the country, and he doesn't like what the Nazis stand for, and so he's just not sure if this is something that he can do. And even when some people say, well, how about this? You, you don't actually have to fight. You could just be a medic in the army. Uh, you don't have to take anybody's life. There are people that, that try to, like official people who try to uh, adapt to his morality. But if that's the case, it still comes down to this is an army that is doing terrible things representing a man that is doing terrible things that they've sworn an oath to and he needs to swear that oath and he just feels like he can't uh partially because of who adolf hitler is but also because the only oath that franz is is comfortable swearing is an oath to god and an oath to his wife in the sight of god and so that is the basic premise and then eventually he is called up and he needs to figure out what he's going to do. And it's a very powerful film because Terrence Malick takes this small story of these two people that were not public figures or anything like that. And he gives it this epic treatment. Uh, some of the reviews that I've read, some of the comments that I've read, uh, take issue with the length of the film, but also the, the way that he makes a movie again, just a lot of, a lot of use of voiceover as the characters are praying or we're hearing their inner thoughts or we're hearing a, a letter that Franz has written to his wife or something like that. Uh, as we see these beautiful shots of mountains and fields and streams and all of that. And there are people that just have, an, have a problem with that because they just feel like it doesn't quite fit the story, uh, which could be shot in a way that is very straightforward and actually very intimate. And I don't think that would have been a bad thing to do either. But a big part of the film has to do with, in fact, the title of the film comes from this idea that Franz and his wife and his whole family are just regular people. This is not a Gandhi situation or a Martin Luther King or any kind of figure like that. Uh, this is not a, a well-known person who is taking this stand in the eyes of the public. It's nothing like that. And in fact, when he has finally 
I was going to say defied the Nazis. And even though that's officially what he's doing, even that sounds grand. And there's nothing grand about the way Franz uh, presents himself or his objections. Um, he doesn't make these big speeches or anything like that. He just says, I can't swear this oath. And the people in power, when they are faced with him and they're trying to figure out what to do with him, one of the things that many of them say, this is not just one uh, oppressor that says this, anybody who's talking to him uh, makes this interesting appeal to, I wouldn't necessarily say his pride, uh, though it could be that as well, but one of the things that they say is that, hey, you realize that nobody is seeing this. Nobody is seeing your protest. Nobody is seeing you take this stand. This is literally just you uh, standing on principle, and as a result, you can't go home to your wife, and now your wife and your children are without a father, all for nothing. Everybody talks about how it's all for nothing. And that, I think, is a big part of why Terrence Malick wanted to make this film and why he wanted to make it the way that he did. When people talk about how this movie could have been and maybe should have been a smaller, more intimate affair, uh, Terrence Malick looks at their story and the anonymity of their story. And it's almost as though he is retroactively making them into a T.E. Lawrence type. You know, Lawrence of Arabia, uh, made in 1962, is a three and a half, uh, sorry, a three hour and 15 minute film. It's a huge epic because we're dealing with war and we're dealing with all this sort of uh, heroism and all this sort of stuff. And, and the people that are sort of taunting Franz, they're the ones saying, you're not this, you're not this hero, you're not bigger than life, no one's paying attention to you, nobody cares about you. And Terrence Malick, by making his, this film this way, it's like he's saying, oh no, I'm going to give Franz that treatment. I'm going to act as though uh, he is Lawrence of Arabia or he is Gandhi or something like that. I am going to treat him that way because what he did is still brave, maybe even braver because the, the strength that he has to find to do it is something that he finds in, in himself as opposed to, uh, the public or newspapers writing about him or anything like that. And so when you have to find that inside yourself, uh, it's, it's a very lonely thing and there's, there must be tremendous temptation to, to give in when you know that nobody is watching. And, so along those lines, I do I do want to talk about uh, the acting. Um, people tend not to talk a lot about the acting in uh, Terrence Malick films, even though the acting is often marvelous. Uh, all everybody in Tree of Life, everybody in the Thin Red Line, uh, Badlands, everyone does a really great job. And so I don't mean to say that the actors aren't doing a great job. It's just that. Uh, when you're watching a Terrence Malick film, it's usually the cinematography and the use of music that people notice first. But in a situation like this, where you have a character like Franz, who is so internal uh, and is not uh, grandstanding or anything like that, uh, having an actor that can convey the uh, an epic amount of turmoil inside a, a single quiet human being uh, that's very important and uh, August Deal who I'm only familiar with from the film Inglorious Bastards where many people have 
pointed this out. Ironically, uh, he plays a Nazi in that um, and a very uh, flamboyant one uh, as well. Whereas here he plays this very quiet man and he just has such a, he's just so expressive. Like if you just look at his, his eyes, you can just see that at any moment it looks like he could burst out crying. Uh, there's an intensity there, but there's also an, uh, an extreme vulnerability. And that is what you need for something like this. When somebody is being oppressed for their beliefs, uh, and they're being removed from the people that they love and they're undergoing some really horrible things. And they know that at some point they, at any point they could be executed. That is, that's gotta be a, a tremendous strain on someone and just a huge weight to bear. And with Franz, you, you do see him bearing that weight. This is not a thing he wants to do. He would like to avoid it if he could, but he just can't let himself. He couldn't live with himself if he were to do what people told him to do. And so you do find a certain degree of, of quiet strength, but there is undoubtedly a humanity there. It would be easy to take this character and make him into some kind of, uh, sort of a, a bloodless icon, but no, this is a very human story. And I think that's actually one of the things that I like about Terrence Malick and the way that he directs actors is I think he's a very humanistic director. He tends not to judge people. He judges their actions and he judges the outcome of their actions and their philosophies. Uh, because here we have a, a number of characters. Some of them are just straight up Nazis. And then some of them, for example, the mayor of August, uh, of Franz town is constantly, uh, pressuring him and, and being, uh, pretty mean about it and, and pretty aggressive about it. And the stuff that he is talking about, he says some very anti-Semitic stuff, uh, in the film. And so you're not really on board with him. Uh, and yet somehow the, when you look at the intensity of him, you, you wonder, and maybe I'm just, I don't know, maybe I'm just being naive, but you wonder how much he actually believes what he's saying, this mayor. Um, there does seem to be a real contempt for himself, uh, in the way he carries himself. And so, uh, as, and in fact, as, as Franz encounters a lot of these other characters, uh, whether they be like the, the priests in his town or even some of the Nazi officials who've gone along with these things that maybe they're not necessarily on board with, but they're either playing the game or they're just scared and they're going along with it because they don't want to be killed. Uh, they don't want to be put in the position that Franz, uh, is eventually put in. Um, but as you, as we talk to them, we do see, a lot of doubt and again, a lot of, in the case of the mayor, I genuinely think some self-hatred and you don't, I'm not sure if it's there, if they're, if it's there all the time and they're aware of it, or it's only when they encounter Franz and they see somebody who did not compromise, uh, that this, it triggers in them that like, Oh wow. Okay. This is, I, I assumed that everybody was going to make the pragmatic choice. Uh, and yet Franz is here standing on his Christian principle. And, uh, this can be summed up actually. Uh, it, there's a, a scene with, um, Bruno Ganz. I believe this was his final film and he plays a, a supporting role and not, not a very big one, but he plays a, a judge who is on a tribunal that is, 
uh, judging Franz and he meets with him privately. And one of the things that he asks him is, do you judge me? Which is so fascinating. I mean, this guy is a judge. He has tremendous power. Franz has no power at all. And yet when he's talking to him, he asks Franz, do you judge me? And I think that's a guy who, who, when he encounters real integrity that somebody's willing to die for, it clearly rattles him. Uh, and scenes like that are, are why I think the film's length is necessary because you really want time, uh, for Franz situation to really sink in and for other characters to respond to it. You don't want to shortchange anybody involved. Uh, and I do think that that is the sign of a humanistic director a and a director who, even if he's not on board with his, with certain characters, actions or philosophies. And in fact, he may hate those characters, actions and philosophies. Uh, he still sees them as capable of, of redemption, capable of, uh, turning around and doing the right thing. Um, I genuinely think that's the way Terrence Malick approaches his characters, uh, which is why I find his movies so refreshing and yet also so frustrating. Our instinct is to look at characters like the mayor and like this judge and just hate them. It's easy to hate people. It feels good to hate people, especially when they're espousing this really horrible, uh, philosophy, uh, and they dehumanize other people. Uh, but I think Terrence Malick often takes the, I won't even say the high road. I'll just say the hard road and wants to see his characters for what they are, but also what they could be. So, uh, there's just a lot to really love about a hidden life. And I found it so inspiring as someone who is a Christian, but also I, I don't think you need to be a Christian to feel inspired by this film. I think anybody who has a sense of right and wrong um, can can look at this and then look at the world around them and see like, all right, what compromises am I, is the world either directly or indirectly uh, requiring me to make? And I will say that for the first hour of the film, which is, mathematically one third of it, uh, the film is a little bit more specifically political. The way that Franz and his wife, uh, played by Valerie, uh, Pachner, the way they talk about, you know, I don't recognize my country anymore anymore. And the way the mayor is, is talking about Jews and he's talking about these people and they come in and they ruin everything. I, I do genuinely think that it is meant to evoke, uh, certain American attitudes right now. Terrence Malick is an American director, and I think he sees aspects of, of current American nationalism as uh, disheartening and the way people talk about uh, uh, certain types of immigrants or maybe even all immigrants as like, oh, they're coming in here and they're ruining our country. Uh, I think he, he definitely draws those parallels, and I'll be honest, uh, Regardless, regardless of what I might actually think about any of those issues, for the first hour, when it was clear that he is sort of drawing a certain parallel, uh, I found myself not, ne not necessarily rolling my eyes, but feeling like, oh man, I thought Terrence Malick was more subtle than this. 
but once again, that's one of the great things about the length of the film is that uh, that's the first hour and he's really setting the stage. And then he pivots and tell and, and goes more into the specifics of this story. Um, and there's nothing wrong with, with, uh, allegory and there's nothing wrong with, um, drawing parallels between the past and the present and, and using film to do that. There's nothing wrong with that at all. It doesn't bother me. Um, but the idea of using Franz story, uh, simply as a way to comment on current, uh, events, it just felt like if it were, if it were done worse, uh, then it would almost be like, you're just using him and you're not wanting to do justice to him. Uh, at no point did I get that feeling from the film, but if Terrence Malick was a worse director, um, and the film were shorter and, and, uh, was more straightforward, I think that's what it could have been. And it probably still would have been a, a, a powerful story, but, uh, one that I think would not feel quite so right and quite so inspiring. It would be a movie that made you angry, not a movie that made you look inward and ask yourself, what would I do in this situation? And, and from a Christian standpoint, you then, or at least I did, I, after the film, like I prayed that Lord, I don't think I'm ever going to be in a situation like this, but if I were, I, I asked that you would give me the strength to do the right thing. And so along those lines, uh, the companion film is one that we've actually done an episode about before. Uh, it's a film that I really love. And in some ways, it actually does not fit 100% with uh, A Hidden Life. Because like I said, Franz is an anonymous farmer. Whereas Thomas More in A Man for All Seasons, directed in 1966 by Fred Zinneman, he is a public figure. And he defies uh, the king of England, and that's all very public. And then that's one of the things that the king is so angry about is that this guy um, in the film he describes him as uh, honest, but what? But more specifically, you're known to be honest is something that he he tells him. And so when a public figure that is known to be honest uh, is defying the king, then that is a problem because then everyone wonders okay, well, this man of integrity, this man of honesty, if he can't get on board with this thing, then maybe I can't either. And so, uh, so there is a difference, I think, uh, between the two. Like I said, Franz is not a Gandhi per, uh, character. He's not a Martin Luther King character, and he's not a Thomas More character. Uh, that's, a big, that's a big part of the reason why Terrence Malick made the film. But nonetheless, the story really worked for me and there were certain beats because after a certain point, uh, uh, public or not, when Franz or Thomas More are locked away from their family and they're just left to rot in jail, uh, it doesn't really matter how public you are because uh, More himself is not seeing uh people rally to him and when and if people did rally to him it didn't save him he still was executed uh just as franz was and so uh a man for all seasons is based on a play and i think it's a brilliantly written play the you know so many so many movies it's a period piece made in the 60s and i think a lot of people could look at the film and just see it as this very 
old school stodgy movie. Um, you know, the, the following year, so it won best picture in 1966 and the year after it was in the heat of the night, like a, a, a modern minded film that dealt very directly with racism. Uh, and then that same year you had Bonnie and Clyde and, and also I think, uh, was, I think you had the graduate that year. And so, uh, people look at 66 as sort of the, the last, the last hurrah for old school Hollywood. Uh, and I, I see what, what they're saying. The film is not directed in a way that is, uh, you know, is throwing you any curveballs. but I do think it's written so well and there's just, and it's razor sharp, this dialogue. Um, and it's done with a very arch sensibility that in a way I feel like the film could be, uh, the play could be readapted, um, today and it would still be a period piece because it's telling a true story but uh but could be done by a different type of filmmaker who makes it feel a little bit more contemporary because the play and again the way the characters relate to each other is already pretty uh, contemporary um to me the script is is almost like uh the lion in winter which is a film that definitely feels more modern and it was only made a, a couple years after that um so I don't mean to to, to denigrate uh, A Man for All Seasons. I think it's beautifully shot and wonderfully acted. Uh, but that script is really, uh, really marvelous. Um, it's it's written by Robert, Ball, uh, Robert Bolt. He wrote the play and he wrote the screenplay. And so uh, as I was looking through the, the script for A Man for All Seasons, I saw so many of these wonderful uh, lines that could be a, a applied to a hidden life or to, uh, really any kind of situation because not unlike a, a hidden life, people are constantly making appeals to Thomas and they're saying, well, maybe you can just agree to do what the King wants you to do for this reason or that reason. Um, and so there's uh, the Duke of, of Norfolk played by Nigel Davenport. Uh, he's saying to Thomas, he's saying, I'm not a scholar. I don't know whether the marriage was lawful or not. Uh, the situation here being King Henry VIII, uh, wants to divorce his wife and marry somebody else, not necessarily out of love, uh, but because his current wife is not producing, uh, an heir or at least a, a male heir. And that is a, a, a problem for him. So, uh, he wants to get that marriage annulled and then, uh, marry somebody else. And Thomas More can't really sanction that because he's a firm Catholic and he feels like there's nothing, uh, there's nothing that, uh, makes this okay from a spiritual standpoint. But anyway, so the Duke of Norfolk says, I'm not a scholar. I don't know whether the marriage was lawful or not, but damn it, Thomas, look at these names. That being the names of people that signed. And he says, why can't you do as I did and come with us for fellowship? And then Thomas says, and when we die and you are sent to heaven for doing your conscience and I'm sent to hell for not doing mine, will you come with me for fellowship? Uh, which I adore. Um, and then, and Thomas has a number of these, of these wonderful lines where he says, uh, I think when statesmen forget, uh, forsake their own private conscience for the sake of their public duties, they lead their country by short route to chaos. And I want to, I want to use that to talk about this quote by George Eliot that, um, that a hidden life get, takes its title from, um, 
And the quote, and the, the, it is at the end of the film as well. And it says, for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. And that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Um, and so, you know, in the case of, of Thomas More, he's talking about statesmen. He's talking about politicians. And in the case of George Eliot, he's talking about the people that are not known. He's uh, speaking very specifically about somebody like, uh, like Franz. But in both cases, people being true to their own conscience, being true to their own convictions, even in the face of tremendous pressure. Um, there's a character in uh, Man for All Seasons played wonderfully by uh, Orson Welles. And he says, if you could, and he's talking to Thomas More, and he says, if you could just see facts flat on without that horrible moral squint, with a little common sense, you could have made a statesman. Um, and there's there's an element to that scene. We don't see Orson Welles uh, very much in the film. He plays uh, Cardinal Wolsey. And I've read, I've read um, reviews of A Man for All Seasons, and they talk about Welles' character and that he he seems to have he sort of gave himself over to compromise many years ago uh but not unlike the judge played by bruno gans in a hidden life when he comes across thomas uh on one hand he's he's he has nothing but contempt for him but i think he also has a fair amount of uh, self-hatred as well because when he sees thomas standing on this principle he is able to think of all the times he didn't stand on principle. And so he, that's how he's able to, uh, refer to Thomas's moral squint as horrible. Um, and so when you come across characters like Cardinal Woolsey or the judge, um, it forces you to contemplate this idea that yes, unlike Thomas More. And unlike Franz, these other characters did compromise, and as a result, they were allowed to live and they were allowed to flourish. But if you look at their behavior and if you look at their attitude, uh, you could make the argument that it might be kind of a uh, kind of overreaching. But it's that idea. It's like yes, they lived, but. What exactly are they living for, aside from their own survival at this point? Um, and while I do understand there is the idea in the film, does, uh, the film A Hidden Life does talk about this. Um, there are loved ones, and you know you want to be there for them, and you don't want to deprive them of yourself. But it's it's this idea that yes, but the the people that love you, one of the things they love ab about you, if you are in this position, they love what you believe. They love the way in which you believe it. And so if you compromise that to be with them, on one hand, I have no doubt that they would uh, be happy that you're with them, but at the same time, uh, you will have compromised one of the things that they love about you so that you can be with them. Um, and so A Hidden Life is, is a very complex film, and it does uh, require you to ask of yourself, what would you do in his situation? And I don't think the film necessarily, 
judges you if you decide, you know what, I think I'd probably take the oath, be a medic, and then just come try to come back home to my family and take care of them instead of leaving them alone because I've been executed. Um, I don't think the film actually, uh, I don't think Terrence Malick would judge you if that's the decision that you made. Uh, but I think an argument could be made that he wouldn't make a movie about that person. He's making a movie about the person who said, I'm sorry, I can't live with myself if I do this thing that I genuinely believe to be immoral. Um, and if I say I believe something that I actually don't. Um, and so I, there are a number of, um, of pass, uh, passages here from the Bible that I wanted to read very quickly. Um, that have to do with, with this. So the first is James four verses 13 through 17. And for those that might not be familiar with James, um, this book is very, it's very dense in both the way it's written and also its tone. Uh, James does not uh, suffer fools lightly and he does not mince words. Uh, so here we go. Uh, James four verses 13 through 17. It says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do, and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So, I mean, that's, yeah, like I said, he doesn't, uh, doesn't mince words, but it's, it's this idea that, you know, taking this, this concept that you only really have this moment right now, you can't guarantee that tomorrow's going to come and tomorrow you'll do the right thing. Um, and so I could see Franz looking at a verse like this and saying, yeah, sure. I can compromise now. And then hopefully in, in a year or half a year or something like that of being a medic, maybe I can come back to my wife and then, then I will live a good life of conviction. But James says, you don't know if you're going to come back. You, he, medic or not, he still could have died in the war. And then his wife is still gone and is, he's still gone from his wife and he has compromised his value. Um, there's a line from the movie, the verdict, uh, which also actually has a, a, a kind of a theme of, of Catholicism in there. It's written by David Mamet, um, in which Paul Newman has to determine whether to compromise on a certain case. Um, and someone says, well, there'll be other cases. And the character says, there are no other cases. This is the case. And then he repeats it actually a couple of times, kind of to himself. And along those lines, uh, James here seems to be saying, there are, you cannot count on any other moments. This is the moment. And right now at this moment, what are you going to do? Um, and yes, it puts a lot of pressure on you, but in a way it also, to me, I think it, it, it adds tremendous clarity to the, the conversation. Um, okay. So first Corinthians 15 verses 56 through 58. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 
uh, and this this one's pretty straightforward as well. Um, it's meant to uh, encourage you to do the right thing, to let nothing move you, and that even the threat of death is something that if you believe in Jesus, you believe that he has conquered, and that yes, even if we are not going to conquer it, uh, if we die here, we're going to stay dead here, but that we have this idea of eternal life. And thinking in terms of Franz being separated from his wife, um, uh, in death, you know, one of the things that I find fascinating is the concept of eternity and living here on this, uh, on, in this world. And then you die and then either, you know, like you go to heaven or you go to hell, either way, you're going into eternity. And I imagine that once you're there, eternity being a place, uh, a, a place without time or a thing without time, whatever you want to call it. Um, I think once you're there, you're not going to necessarily think in terms of, well, I was alive on earth and then I, then I stopped and I came here. Uh, I think when you exist outside of time, and this is something that I, 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 I think I might've picked up from, uh, CS Lewis, uh, this idea that when you're there, it's almost like you've always been there, whether it be heaven or hell. And then when it's not like you're just waiting around for a few more years for your, if you die before your loved ones, it's not like you're just looking at your watch, waiting for them to show up. Like what does show up even mean? Um, when there is no sense of time, it's, it's kind of a, a weird thing, but thinking in terms of being separated from his wife, of course, from the point of view of the people, uh, left behind, uh, grief is tremendously difficult. And his wife would not only have a very difficult time with her grief, but also just living her life and raising her children. But at the same time, when she eventually, uh, dies, then there is this idea of being reunited and because both of these people have now slipped into eternity, it's like they were always there. And so thinking in terms, you know, to take these, these passages and put them together, you've got James and you've got uh, Paul in, in first Corinthians talking about like, yeah, if you go against your conscience, if you, if you know what you're supposed to do and you don't do it, uh, then that's a sin. Uh, and maybe that's the sin that keeps you out of, uh, keeps you out of heaven to go back to Thomas More uh, in uh, A Man for All Seasons. And so, uh, you know, so much of the Bible is about taking the longer view, um, recognizing that you're doing what's right in the moment, even if it's difficult because you're thinking outside of the moment. Um, Second Timothy three, uh, sorry, Second Timothy three, verses twelve through thirteen. Uh, he says, uh, "In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived." So, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to get into uh, God's not dead territory uh, here, but uh, you know, I, I do think that when you stand up for what's right, you can, you will, there will be someone that is angry. Um, regardless of what your politics are, regardless of what the culture is, uh, if something is inherently true, then 
there are going to be people on either side of that thing that say, oh, it's going, this truth is going too far this way. Or, and then someone else says the truth is going too far that way. And it's never exactly what people want. The truth is something that is, is going, if it's the truth, it's going to make people angry because we have a tendency. And I say, we, including me, we have a tendency to get wrapped up in lies and really buy into them because either they benefit us or they make us feel a little bit better, whatever it is. And so when the truth comes along, it's something that we will sometimes be hostile to. Uh, and so, you know, in second Timothy, when it says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The persecution might be something like Thomas More or uh, Franz in A Hidden Life. It might be that, but it might be something a bit more cultural. It could be somebody just being angry at you, or you could be uh, ostracized, but you're not necessarily going to be arrested and uh, executed. Um, It could just be that people make fun of you. Um, and when you're somebody like myself who wants everybody to like him, it's, it sounds so strange to even phrase it that way, because (laughs) when you, when you talk about these real life people who were willing to go to the gallows, uh, for their convictions, as opposed to me, it's like, well, maybe I won't say that thing. Cause you know, someone might not like me at this particular moment. Uh, it <laughs> seems pretty shallow. Uh, but anyway, uh, in John 15 verses 18 and 19, Jesus says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Um, and so there can be a certain degree of comfort in that, that, um, you know, doing the right thing in the moment because we are thinking about the eternal um, and understanding that what we're experiencing is something that is has already been predicted and is something that is kind of a sign that, uh, that you are doing the right thing. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> if everyone's mad at you, it, it might not hurt to first look at yourself and be like, was I a jerk about this? Um, people being mad at you is not inherently, uh, a sign that you've done something, uh, correct. Uh, because I think you do need to look at your tone and all that sort of thing. But after you do that preliminary exam, uh, examination and you feel like, okay, I think I did this as humbly as I possibly could. And all I was really doing was quoting Jesus or quoting the Bible. If that's the case and people are still upset with you, then it's like, all right, well, I don't like that people are angry at me, but at the same time, at least, uh, I know that it's not me they're angry at. It's the person that I'm quoting, the person that I'm following, which is Jesus. Um, back to James. This is James five verses 10 and 11 brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, uh, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed, uh, blessed, pardon me, those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Uh, yeah, eventually you you get around to somebody like Job or Jeremiah who did not have the happiest of lives, at least for a good chunk of their lives. And James is saying like, hey, these are people that because we, we hear about them and we look at them and we know the final outcome, uh, we, we are able in retrospect to say, hey, their suffering was absolutely worth it. Um, 
in the moment when we're suffering, it cert- certainly doesn't feel worth it, but he's saying, hey, no, 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 just think about the way we look at them. Someone could look at you that way. And it's not about status, it's about the, the benefit of hindsight and being able to see the whole story. You know, the Bible, I don't, I don't know exactly where it is specifically, but uh, the Bible does talk about God working out everything for the people that, that love him, um, for the best. And the best ultimately is reconciliation with God. Um, we all have a different definition of what the best might be. Uh, and the best ultimately is what is good eternally, not necessarily temporarily. Uh, so lastly, uh, first Peter five verses six through 11, uh, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil prowls prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little, a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. So, you know, there's, there's a whole lot here, um, but it's all about to go back to this, this term from James, this perseverance and being steadfast, uh, and that it's not easy. Like this, these verses do not suggest that standing up for what is right is going to be easy, but it is saying that, uh, God loves that and he can actually provide you with a strength that you may not have yourself. So I also wanted to, uh, quote this line from, uh, a man for all seasons. This is one of Thomas More's uh, last lines where he says, and this is right before he's about to be executed. And he says, I die his majesty's good servant, but God's first, uh, his majesty here being the King. Um, and that, that is what it's all about. Like, I mean, obviously we don't want to anger people and we don't want to dishonor people, but when it comes right down to it, if it's, if it's between dishonoring them or dishonoring God, if it's about serving them or serving God, we have to serve God. That's what it has to be. Um, whether it's public or not, uh, it could be, um, uh, it could be a situation like Franz where in the moment, nobody knows that you're doing this. It's literally just between you and God. God might be the only one seeing what you are doing. You might be surrounded by people that are jeering at you, people that are yelling at you, which I don't know if you've been paying attention, is something that has been happening lately. Um, And not, I don't just mean to Christians, I mean to everybody. Anybody who disagrees with anybody else gets laughed at, gets ridiculed, uh, all of that. And so, and sometimes they get physically attacked. Um, and so it's very difficult. And in that moment, you're not going to see any, uh, sympathetic faces. And so you might just have to sort of imagine God's face looking at you sympathetically and saying, I'm sorry that this is what you have to go through, but don't worry. I will carry you out of it. Um, there's a, a, another, a couple of lines in, 
uh, a man for all seasons in which Thomas is talking to this, uh, younger man named, uh, rich who is played by John, a young John hurt actually. And Thomas is, and rich is very ambitious. And Thomas says, why not be a teacher? You'd be a fine teacher, perhaps a great one. And then rich says, if I was, who would know it? And Thomas says, you, your pupils, your friends, God, not a bad public bat. And I love, I love that line. Um, because it's so important that we, and again, as I'm speaking very much about myself here, it's so important that we be on the, on the side of the people that sometimes talk the loudest or the people that proclaim themselves to be right. Um, we want people to like us and what's more, we sometimes want a lot of people to like us. We want people to see when we do the right thing. Um, and when it comes right down to it, the only opinion, I was going to say the only opinion that should matter. Uh, that's, that's when it comes to, that's when it comes to us in a, in a cosmic sense, the only opinion that actually does matter is the opinion of God. And not simply because God is in charge of who gets in and who gets into heaven and all that. It's not even so much that it's that like God is himself truth and it's an irrefutable truth. I know that there are plenty of people that don't believe in God, so they wouldn't say he's irrefutable. I just mean to say that like, if you do believe in God, then you believe that God is the last word on everything. And so if you look at it that way, yes, other people matter very much and we want to love them and we want to be there for them. And we want to give their opinion weight in our own lives because they can actually correct us and get us uh, on the right path. But if you are in a position where somebody is demanding that you do the wrong thing and it might sound so very right to them, um, in the end, the only eyes that matter are the eyes of God. And I want you to imagine, like I said, there's a whole crowd of people that are jeering at you and God is standing there looking at you saying, I know this is really, really hard, but just stay with it. It's not going to last forever, but what will is me. So just look at me. And that is something that helps me a great deal. And I do feel like, uh, when you watch a hidden life, this is a guy who, he didn't even necessarily have people publicly jeering at him. Again, it was so, it was so anonymous that the only real company he might have had uh, was God at at various points. And as we hear from uh, Thomas More in A Man for All Seasons, that's not that's not a bad public. That might be the only public you really need to care about. Um, it really is a marvelous film. I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, like I said, you will need to kind of prepare yourself for it. It's not only a long movie, but it's a film that you, that could be seen as meditative. It is, it's structured in in a very different way than most movies. Uh, but if you go in, especially as a Christian, but not even just that, like as anybody with, with, uh, a conscience and, and, uh, conviction, you can go into the film and feel inspired to, maybe take stands that you wouldn't otherwise because you're worried about how people would, uh, would see you. And then also when you look at Franz, 
he did not take his stand defiantly. He didn't have, he didn't have a chip on his shoulder. He didn't like stick out his jaw waiting for somebody to, to punch him or anything like that. He wasn't defiant. Like I said, uh, he's very humble. So that can also be, uh, a, a point of inspiration for us is that not only is it say the right thing, take a stand, but also do it humbly because it's not about us doing these amazing things. It's about God giving us the strength to do these amazing things. And his truth is bigger than us. Whoever says his truth is in the right, whether it be us or, or not. So hopefully that can, that can humble us as well. So that the things that we say are said in righteousness, but not self-righteousness, um, and in love, like a genuine love for other people, as opposed to a desire to show, uh, how contrarian we are. So clearly a lot of this stuff has resonance with me, whether it be the opinion of other people or going back, I just use the word contrarian. That's something that I, that I struggle with. Um, everyone thinking one thing and then I am, unique and rare and ah, look at this thing that I think, um, you know, uh, it, it would, it's weird that those things, uh, exist within me, the desire to have everyone like me while also occasionally defying them. Um, but such is the complex nature of humanity and, uh, I will leave it to God to work all that stuff out anyway. Um, yeah, check out, uh, a hidden life I don't know what the theatrical release schedule is right now. If you live in a major city, you probably are able to see it somewhere. Uh, and then in the meantime, check out A Man for All Seasons. It is a, a really marvelous film. So anyway, uh, you're welcome to email me, Tyler at MoreThanOneLesson.com. You can follow me on Twitter, at More Lessons, and then you can always uh, like us on Facebook. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, the next episode will be in two weeks. I don't yet know what it's going to be, but uh, I will announce it on Twitter and Facebook uh, probably a, a week or maybe five days before so that you have time to watch the movie if you can, uh, and be ready for the discussion. So once again, thank you very much for listening and we'll get you next time. Bye.